Hello, and welcome to the Black History Month Cambridge Stronger special episodes. I'm Amy Weber, president and CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. In recognition of Black History Month, we've teamed up with our Diversity, Equality, and Inclusion Committee to offer a two-part series. We believe building a diverse and inclusive work environment is more important than ever, particularly in the financial services industry. We hope we can help provide awareness around diversity in our industry and discuss many ways we can all help create a more inclusive environment. With that, I'd like to welcome accredited investment fiduciary, registered principal, and investment advisor rep, Vaughn Cook of Client-Centric Advisors. Welcome to the show, Vaughn. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored, and it's always great to, to see you, so. Wonderful. So I'm really excited about our special segments here. And I'd like to kick this off with you explaining to our listeners a little bit about your business, what it looks like, and specifically, how did you get started? What uh, drove the success that you've been so fortunate to have? To be honest, uh, the way I got started, I've been in the business for about um, a little over 20 years. I wish as it pertains to quote unquote success that I had a silver bullet. Personally, I don't think I'm successful as I look at some of the peers, I look at you and then some of the other reps at Cambridge and there are so many other individuals doing so much better than I am if you had to place a ranking on us. So I just try to do the right thing for everyone, um, you know, all the time and then it seems like you do something well, then something good happens to you. And so that's kind of really how I built the practice. Um, if you want, I can elaborate a little bit about uh, the business as an advisor or as an OSJ, or we can save that for later. It's completely up to you. Yeah, no, let's talk about both. Let's tell you, you serve dual roles. I'm glad that you um, moved us into that environment because I think it's important for our listeners to understand that you've got some different hats that you wear in your business. So go ahead and explain what you do on the advisor side. And then also you're a business executive within one of our enterprises. And um, we'd love to hear about your role as an OSJ. For us, I think truth be told, our name says it all. You know, we are client-centric advisors. So therefore our world revolves around the client and their well, their well, their well-being, no matter how large or how small their accounts are. So I like to believe internally that I'm a quote unquote advocate for what I'm gonna call for the little guy. Um, a lot of firms out there, they give price breaks and fees for the larger clients. And unfortunately, some of those firms have you know, high account minimums. But with that being said, some of those same firms will pawn a $250,000 client, which is a lot of money in my eyes, off to a call center in which they'll speak with a different rep each time. So we feel the smaller clients, whether it's 250 or, you know, 25,000, they're the ones that they really need our help. They need the price breaks more than the large investors. So therefore we kind of, we treat everyone the same, uh, no matter how large or small to provide, you know, solid financial advice. Regarding being an OSJ manager, we've received a lot of positive feedback in the form of gratitude from our reps, which I was kind of shocked and also grateful. For them, they really appreciated that we, quote unquote, you know, walk in their shoes and we can rate, relate to their trials and uh, tribulations of being an FP. So one of them actually referred to us as a happy median between, say, compliance and the sales force. 
just because, let's say, for example, if you're looking at something trade review, it reads one thing and they're like, well, what does this mean? And so when you kind of put it in just like your normal layman's term, everyday language, you know, then they understand it. So I think this approach, although a little bit different, you know, by having a representation or wearing two hats as the financial advisor and the OSJ manager, it's very rewarding. Um, so I love it. And what it all comes down to, in my opinion, is at the end of the day, 90% of all financial advisors, we all can do the same thing within that 10%, you know, Delta. I think what really sets us apart at client-centric on both the retail side and the OSJ side, it comes down to customer experience. I mean, you go to Starbucks, some people like Starbucks, some people don't, but you know, when you go there, you're going to get that piping hot cup of coffee. It's going to smell great, nice serene music, and it's going to have that cardboard cut out for your hand so it's a pleasant experience and i think that's really what kind of sets us apart yeah you're describing things that we talk about here at cambridge too around who the, the people that have our core values and we are here to make a difference and it's the unique experience it's charting your own course and and all of those things which is probably why it's been such a great partnership with you you are very humble you um, earlier as you were describing you know your level of success but we are honored to have you as a part of our cambridge family and you're a great representative of, of cambridge stronger tell the listeners a little bit though of how you got started before you were with us and maybe you know as a as a person that was even maybe still trying to figure out whether financial services was what you wanted to do, or did you, did you, were you born knowing you wanted to be in financial services? Great question. So truth be told, I was always from high school starting around eighth, ninth grade. So technically ninth grade, I was always groomed to become a physician. So with that being said, it was always a very analytical science mathematics driven um, really path for me. Um, and, but by the time, and I'm just, I'll pause 11th grade. So to show you how entrenched I was becoming a physician, the, the summer going from my junior year to senior year, the University of Miami has a program. It's very selective. It's about 14,000 applicants. They select eight people. Um, it's called the Student Research Apprentice Program. It's at the University of Miami School of Medicine. I was fortunate enough to become one of those um, eight persons, so spent the summer there, but I was geared at, you know, to become a doctor, and I knew I wanted to major in biochem, I knew where I wanted to go to med school. Around senior year, uh, someone from downtown Miami came in, I think back then it could have been, it was, oh my gosh, I think it was, forget, it's Morgan Stanley, but Morgan Stanley Dean, where they came in, they had to play a stock game, you know, back then. We looked at newspapers to get the tickets, et cetera, and it pinked my, piqued my interest. I couldn't dare tell my old school military father that I don't want to be a doctor anymore because, again, obviously being a minority in the community I grew up in, if you wanted to succeed, there was two paths. It was either a physician or an attorney. Didn't want to be an attorney. So physician was the way to go. I was great at science. I was great at math. So went off to Florida State University, academic scholarship. Um, taking 18 hours a semester, about two years in, decided it was no fun. I didn't enjoy anymore. And that's when I kind of changed my direction um, and knew I wanted to pursue this. So with that being said, fast forward to, I think it was 2001 when I first got licensed. It was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done was buckling down and studying at that time as a series seven exam 
but it's probably one of the best decisions that I've ever made. It's, it was a great, you know, beginning of a ride, a great starting point of a career. And I am so grateful fast forward 20 years that I'm here with Cambridge as the thing I love about Cambridge, A, the diversification, they don't just tell you no. It's almost like you guys want to help us and nurture us. So you don't just say no. And when you do say no, they'll say you can't do that. However, you can do it this way and they give us a solution. So I'm grateful for Cambridge and for everyone that's always out there, you know, to, to try to help us. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad the team is listening and they're still handling things the way that we think they are. So I appreciate you validating that. It's good to know that they, uh, our team as a whole understands we actually don't grow unless you grow. So we need you to thrive and we need to nurture and be your partner. So I'm glad to hear that. Let's shift gears a little bit. Talk about the different demographics and the unique needs and goals of first your clients. And then secondly, what does the ideal client look like from a financial advisor perspective? Who, what kinds of financial professionals would fit really well into your organization? At Client Centric, we serve clients from all walks of life. I mean, we have clients that are head, like the head of uh, law departments of major universities. We have uh, amusement park owners as clients down to, you know, a one person small business mobile detailing shop. Um, really for us, what makes our clients unique, it's really their stories and the journeys that led them to client-centric advisors. And one thing we found is that no two clients are the same. So when it comes to their needs, I mean, they're all over the spectrum. You have one client, uh, he or she may want to do everything in their power to avoid paying taxes, while we have a second client who literally does not want to leave a single penny to their children and skip that generation and leave the money to a turtle sanctuary. Then you have a third client that just wants to make sure that he accumulates enough money to where he can, you know, comfortably live in retirement. So really we don't have a mold. The only thing we require from the client side is that you have a goal. Um, you can't bring us, you know, say, Hey, I have a couple hundred thousand dollars, do something. You have to tell us, you know, what's the end game? What are you looking for us to accomplish? Because if we just accept the, the, the dollars and we start investing them, we may completely miss the mark or figure out the need behind the need as far as what you want us to do. So really, again, you have to have a need and you have to be great at communicating or at least willing to communicate. And what about financial professionals? Um, first, how many do you have with you as a part of your organization today? And then talk about the demographics of that particular population. Without putting pen to paper, I probably can tell you the specific amount down to the individual. I'm going to say, call it ballpark, low 20s with about um, five or six licensed solicitors. But regarding let's say the uniqueness or i think you said about the diversities of the fps um we love working with reps from all cultural backgrounds walks of life as i've always said everyone is unique however what i can tell you is that we don't want to work with someone who a doesn't know how to stay within the nine dots or b they don't know how to follow the rules and or respect others so as far as I had to paint the picture of the perfect advisor, really someone who's driven, someone who's in this business for the right reason, you know, A, to help the clients. Obviously, it can be very lucrative, you know, if you do what you're supposed to. But if, if a recruit and or an existing rep, if they're just out chasing a check or trying to make a dollar, um, I'm pretty sure, you know, they can still fall within the FINRA guidelines. But 
I'm just not the guy for you. Yeah. Or Cambridge. So I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Vaughn, I know you were just named as a member of the Financial Services Institute's Board of Directors. Congratulations. I'm excited to serve with you. Um, and secondly, um, let me ask you, when you accepted that role, what is it that you hope to accomplish? Thank you for congratulating me, but I too want to congratulate you as well, as I am super excited, you know, to work in that much closer with you and I can finally, you know, pick the famous brain of uh, Miss Amy Weber. So I'm definitely excited. So for me, um, honestly, I'm honored, I'm humbled. Um, and I was definitely honored when someone brought it to my attention that there was an upcoming vacancy on FSI's board. I've always made a point to advocate, but I think just being someone that didn't want to be in the forefront, I would do it kind of from a, from a distance. So at that point in time, I'm like, you know what? I need to do more. So I decided to throw my ring in the hat. And fortunately, I was able to get elected. So again, I am flattered and humbled. I've been you know, in this industry, like I said, for, for 20, 20 plus years. I've heard people say that they're going to advocate for, you know, for FPs or the producing FPs, but then when it came to vocalize the, the field's concerns, they kind of altered the message or what they were trying to say. They didn't have a loud enough voice or make it get the points heard to where it kind of fell on deaf ears. So for me, um, the way I look at it as this opportunity is going to give all FAs a voice and a seat at the table. Um, just to make sure that their opinions and concerns are heard by those who can make a difference. My intentions are definitely not to come in and shake everything up and turn on its head, but I will make sure that my fellow producers and our clients' interests are first and foremost, you know, place of head of, head of everything else to make sure that, okay, they are the focal point, not some other alternative or alternative motive. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about serving with you. I think we're going to do great things together and I'm glad to have you there. So thank you for accepting that role. Speaking of advocacy, talk about what your thoughts are regarding our industry as a whole and how we can attract more African-American financial professionals. So I think for here, uh, you have to go out and look for talent. By that, I mean, you have to cast a wider net. So, I mean, it's easy as a business owner, you know, to look for talent at, let's say, the, the major universities. I mean, we claim that we're looking, we've included everyone in our search for talent, but talent is present at other places besides traditional D1 schools. So, again, everyone has a story. Everyone is unique. Some of those diamonds in the rough are present at, you know, at HBCUs and at other smaller schools. So, some of those, those students may choose not to attend the major universities not because of their lack of, say, like scholastic aptitude, but for other reasons. I mean, they could be caring for sick parents. Um, they may want to remain local in their communities, or they just flat out may not have access to the financial resources to attend the school. So really, and not to sound cliche, but to count one of my, to quote one of my colleagues, Josh, uh, we as employers just need to show up and be present, you know, and make sure they know where the opportunities are. Yeah, I know in working on some of these topics with our diversity, equality, and inclusion council and our advisory council, we have figured out that there's, a, there's an approach to your point of looking in the right places and also looking for the right things. I think so often we maybe have a bias around 
the type of experience someone needs to have to be successful in our industry. And we need to, I think we need to start looking and hiring for aptitude and potential. Not that we ignore, you know, what kind of uh, life experiences and, and employment experience people have had, but it's really about the, the skills and what they can do with them. And maybe more back to our industry needs to go back to being more committed to mentoring and growing instead of moving at the fast pace sometimes that we do where we, we just want the people that have already been doing it for a long time. So the theme for 2022 is Black History Month, which we are here to celebrate. And thank you for joining me again, is health and wellness. Is there anything you, your firm, your clients do special regarding health and wellness that also impacts their financial wellness? Uh, any thoughts on the, the theme and, and that particular topic? When it comes to our clients' health and wellness, uh, we're not changing our approach to be honest, just because it's the month of February. Um, at Client Centric, you know, we believe that one's physical and financial health, it goes hand in hand. So therefore it's, it's a major focus of ours you know, throughout the entire year. Um, so I can't really, I guess, speak on specifically for February because we've, we've always done it. We're going to continue to do it. What about giving back to the community in other ways? You know, to your point, hopefully a lot of the efforts that are going on in the month of February actually go on all year long. So anything you want to share with the audience about what you found particularly fulfilling as a firm or an individual that they should hear about? One I can think of that does um, involve say a minority client. It was when we had someone's grandmother um, who the children questioned, you know, at her age, which was still about 18 years before, and she recently passed, why she was putting money into a life insurance policy. And they just could not understand it because there were other things that they felt that those dollars could have been utilized more for. But at the time of passing, once we were notified, we, you know, we you know, told them, hey, you're going to be receiving this amount of dollars because something grandmother did. It brought tears to their eyes and the, kind of like the light bulb went off. So I think by just educating the community on what's out there and giving the advice. So I know for me, um, my wife's a teacher. Uh, she used to teach in public school, but, and my mom was a former teacher as well as my dad. So once I got into this industry and they wanted me to come on career day to speak, I would give back by not just writing a check, but give my time to speak with the youth and let them know, hey, you know, the one thing um, I'd always kind of tee the teacher up to say, or actually the teacher would kind of tee it up. They'd see me walk in the suit. So in these communities, um, they would ask, what do you think he does? And again, nine times out of 10, it was lawyers because I was in a suit. Um, a few occasional doctors, one kid thought he was a comedian and said he was car salesman. But once they kind of got, you know, once she told them what I did and I spoke with them, it kind of opened their eyes and you can see them kind of light up. So I think the best thing we can do as advisors, I mean, obviously talk to people and resources, but would be to give back to any community. I don't care if it's, you know, one that maybe not in the great area or one that's an affluent area, but just spend time with the kids. Because although they're in a, say, affluent household, you'd be surprised how many of the kids, they don't get the attention or get their questions answered. And they are just, they have blinders on. So again, I think, one thing we can do as we've done is just give our time. Particularly around financial literacy. Um, I've had a lot of conversations for many years now about perhaps, you know, if we started earlier 
and getting comfortable talking about money, talking about finances, being transparent, educating our kids. And not everybody has parents that perhaps are equipped to do that, but some of us going out into the schools and doing our part to help put together some kind of curriculum to talk about financial literacy could really maybe give them a better start. How important do you think it is to minority clients that they work with firms that are culturally diverse? Do you think it matters? And I want to just preface this by saying it's, this is a slippery slope. So what one has to do is really, when it, this gets addressed, really keep an open mind and kind of peel the first layer back. And that's like what I'm going to do when I answer this question. And to be honest, as a minority, I feel that I can speak on it. It truly depends on the minority. I mean, as you look around, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on, whatever. There's still so much social injustice in this, in this country, and it makes my stomach turn. It really does. So with that being said, it pains me to say that still today in some communities, people only want to do business with people who look like them, which is really unfortunate. But so with that being said, I think at the firm level, and really when you get into the major firms like such as Cambridge and some of the other major players, I think you guys really have more of a responsibility, or I guess from a business planning standpoint, to where you really do need to have that diverse workforce, or else I think you're going to miss out on so many opportunities that are out there. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I hope that I'm still alive and able to appreciate the day that we're celebrating the fact that we don't have to talk about these things anymore. But your point is absolutely uh, one that resonates with me that we do still have to talk about it. And there's a lot of years of talking about it left and then putting that talk into actionable items, um, act actions, um, getting out there and, and leading the way when we have the opportunity to do so. So I appreciate what, you, what you're saying there for sure. Tell me what you do in your free time. So um, it's, my, it's my favorite part of these podcasts because I run into people who maybe either aren't in our industry, have thought about our industry, whether it's second career or a younger generation. And one of the biggest reasons that they choose to pick something else, maybe it's physician or attorney, they, they choose a different path because they think we're really boring and that we don't have uh, life balance and we don't do fun things. So what do you do in your free time? And well, first of all, I hope that you're going to tell me you actually have free time because otherwise I just asked a bad question. But <laughs> assuming that you do have some free time, what do you do? What do you use it for? I really enjoy spending time uh, with, with, with my family, you know, wife and kids. As far as the activities go, I can break into two categories. With my wife, um, just time in general, she, I won't say she forces me, but she really enjoys when we attend CrossFit together. Uh, so I do some CrossFit. Now that I'm a little bit older, I'm not, I don't frequent, frequent the box as much, but you know, I, as long as I can do it a couple of times a week with her, she, week with her, she really appreciates it. When it comes to my kids, um, it's really, uh, I, I'm here in Florida, so I love riding wave runners so with that being said and <laughs> hope no uh what do you call it uh, wildlife commissioners are listening with my youngest daughter she loves racing people so with that being said 
what really kind of makes me light up is if we're out in the bay or on the river. And I mean, if you're on a, 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 a jet ski, a wave runner, whatever you want to coin it, depending on who's next to you, you ha- you're kind of an adrenaline junkie. So when, with that being said, anytime they see us or me, they assume it's just me, they'll pull up kind of behind us and try to take off. Well, my daughter, nine times out of 10, she's with me, she's driving, so I get chauffeured around. She's maybe 85 pounds soaking wet, but yet she's commanding this supercharged wave runner, which most people don't realize it has a supercharge that's had more work done to it than I'd care to commit. And for me, the beauty of it is after she takes off and basically smokes the smokes them, she'll go down. It happens every time. When they turn around, they see this 12-year-old little girl with a ponytail with these bright pink sunglasses. And some of the reactions, if it's a group of guys, when they roll up on her, they're just looking at the guy like, really? And I just throw my hands up. But to answer your question, uh, I love water sports and with wave, you know, riding the wave runner. 85 plus miles an hour verified by GPS. That's, that's what I like. to do. I love it. I need to meet her. So um, let's give these uh, family members of yours some names. So your wife's name is Samantha. And how many kids do you have? I have to admit, I don't know that. I have two. Uh, my oldest is Chloe. She's 15. She's more artsy. Our daredevil who loves racing people and shooting firearms is Olivia. She's 12. I love it. I, uh, you know, girls can be tough and and like literally strong and tough. And I think even today, like we were talking about conversations that seem to have been going on forever and ever. Sometimes people don't expect girls to be able to shoot firearms and ride wave runners like that. But um, I'm glad to hear they're out there. Can't wait to meet them. So let's go back to Black History Month. That's again, why we're here largely to celebrate at least in the month of February. Is there anything about diversity and inclusion that you and I haven't touched on that you think our audience really needs to hear? First and foremost, I definitely want to say, you know, thank you again. Thank you for having me. You've done a great job with the questions. Um, I think the main thing that I think that we need to remember is that everyone deserves a chance. Again, I've been in the industry for, you know, 20 plus years. I live in Florida, so it's no secret. I started my career in the South. So if someone would have prejudged me by the color of my skin and not given me the opportunity based on my merits, truth be told, I would not be sitting here with you today, Amy. So the main thing I'd want to touch on again, guys, just, you know, go in with an open mind, step outside of your comfort zone, you know, maybe talk to someone you typically wouldn't and go to some of the areas you maybe definitely wouldn't. And just, I mean, I promise you, it's going to be one of the most rewarding things you're going to experience and you're going to find that special person and you may not realize it even if you don't choose them or they don't choose you you will make a difference in each other's lives i promise you yeah well said making a difference i love it you are a great representative of what cambridge stronger is all about and uh client-centric advisors as a whole um, based on what you've you know we know each other but i've learned a couple things today I think Main Street, if you will, your clients are lucky to have you and others in your organization in their corner. And I hope that our listeners realize that sometimes you have to take risks and to your point, get out of your comfort zone and experience things that you haven't before to really appreciate the diversity that's in the world and in particular in our industry and on Main Street. 
And we just need to get more people like you and others out there to talk more about your experiences. So it gives other people um, some wind beneath their wings to take those risks and give it a shot. So thank you for joining me. I'm flattered, humbled, honored, you know, excited. I got to get some one-on-one time with you. So you're very welcome and, and just thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. 